This episode of The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Williams Law Office, which is basically me, D.K. Williams. Now, I used to do a lot of exciting litigation, including tort cases, which is basically a pretentious way for lawyers to say they're working on car wreck cases, both for the insurance companies and for plaintiffs. One of my first two jury trials as an insurance defense lawyer in a one-month period, so that was cool. And I represented criminal defendants in state and federal court, including a three-week-long drug conspiracy jury trial in federal court. And then I also represented a man on death row who had been convicted of murder, and I got to argue before the North Carolina Supreme Court in his case and won. So that was cool. Now I'm much more laid back. I'm more chill. I do things like help small businesses. I review contracts for people, help people with government regulations. And if I might be of any help or maybe just point you in the right direction, call or text me directly at 303-588-2731. That's 303-588-2731. Now hit the music. Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 72. We're going to discuss Texas versus Johnson, a 1989 United States Supreme Court case that held in a close 5-4 decision that burning an American flag is an act of expression protected by the First Amendment. Now, I remember when this came out. It came out in 89, year I graduated from college, and the year I started law school. And sitting here, looking back from 2020, I can't believe this was so close. Five to four. It seems obvious to me that burning a flag is protected speech. And as long as it's your flag, of course, because otherwise you're stealing. And we'll get into exactly what happened in this case with Johnson, who burned a flag in Dallas, and what the court said, and what the dissent had to say. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. For this one, just go right to speakeasyideas.com slash the law, and they are almost all there. We're getting the rest of the archives up soon. And be sure to follow us on social media. It's Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. Want to hear from you? And if you're so inclined, you know the routine. Like, review, comment, subscribe, share, etc. I am available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, contact. Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details on that. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via a sponsorship. And before we get into the meat of Texas versus Johnson, I want to mention a few recent legal developments you might have heard about in the news. First, the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was argued at the Supreme Court last week. The structure of the regulatory state is the issue. Can Congress create an administrative agency, which operates in the executive branch, and limit how the chief executive, the president, can operate that agency? Specifically, can Congress limit the president's power to fire the head of the agency? The basic idea is that the head of the executive branch can hire and fire people in the executive branch. What Congress has done is not allowed that. They say that person can only be removed for cause. 
Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, and you know how important it is, how much I stress reading the actual documents and reading the actual opinions. And in the show notes, I always leave a link to the entire written opinion so you guys can look at that if you want to look at it. It's there. I try to make it easy for you. But the Constitution says the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. That seems pretty clear to me. The executive power is vested in the president. That means Congress has no executive power. The president has the executive power. And therefore, Congress has no legitimate authority to limit the president's executive power. And we'll be keeping an eye on that one, see how that goes. And how the media portrays it is interesting as well. I posted a CNBC article or tweeted it out. So the CNBC article had the headline, Supreme Court looks likely to weaken the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. When they could have said, more accurately, Supreme Court looks likely to enforce constitutional separation of powers, but the constitutional foundation of the government was once again ignored. And then we had the Emmett Till anti-lynching statute that passed Congress. Four congressmen did not vote for it. And you can imagine the media reaction, oh my goodness, these guys must be in favor of lynching. They don't think it should be illegal. Which, of course, is nonsense, because murder lynching was and is already illegal in every single state. Making it doubly illegal by making it a federal crime as well is nothing more than virtue signaling. There's no constitutional authority for it either. And that is the problem. Nobody's in favor of lynching. And anybody who makes an argument is not very bright. Nobody is in favor of it. The states have taken care of it. And the enumerated powers do not include the authority to pass general criminal laws. Criminal law was reserved for the states. And the constitutional authority, which was explicitly relied upon in the constitutional authority statement that Congress pretends to care about, was the General Welfare Clause, which is a gross bastardization of what that clause means. And we've talked about that, but that's it in a nutshell. Then Justice Gorsuch made a statement on bump stocks. His comments are far less about the Second Amendment, however, than they are about the administrative state. And he wrote, explaining his thoughts in a denial of a writ of sociari, so the court was not going to hear this case, but he wrote, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms used to tell everyone that bump stocks didn't qualify as machine guns. Now it says the opposite. The law hasn't changed, only an agency's interpretation of it. And he's right. And that's a problem. And Reason.com describes the case. Gorsuch's statement came attached to the Supreme Court's denial of certiorari in Guedes versus ATF. Damien Guedes, G-U-E-D-E-S, I'm probably saying it wrong, challenged the legality of Trump's bump stock ban where he lost before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which said the ban was entitled to judicial deference under the Chevron Doctrine. The Supreme Court declined to hear that case. And that's when Gorsuch made his written comment. Now, Gorsuch also said that the issue is probably going to reach the Supreme Court in a different case. Quote, the law before us carries the possibility of criminal sanctions. Before courts may send people to prison, we owe them an independent determination that the law actually forbids their conduct. A reasonable, in quotes, prosecutor say so is cold comfort in comparison. He's right. And he goes over the problems with Chevron and this whole deference doctrine, the administrative state in his book, 
a republic if you can keep it, which we discussed in episode 65. So stay tuned. We'll keep you up to date as that progresses. The rogue elector cases, also in the news recently, we covered that issue about electoral college and whether or not the electors have discretion or they have to rubber stamp whatever they're told to do by the legislature. And we covered that in episodes 48, 49, 50. And then we had an interview with Colorado's rogue elector, Michael Baca, in episode 60. Also in the news, Ninth Circuit correctly threw out Dennis Prager's First Amendment law lawsuit against YouTube because YouTube can't violate your First Amendment because YouTube is not the government. In addition, the Supreme Court refused to expand Bivens, which we discussed in episode 58, to allow a Mexican nationals family to sue the United States Immigration Office and an official, an ICE official, who was accused of shooting a teenage boy a Mexican national, across the U.S. border. So the boy was on the Mexico side, ICE agent was on the U.S. side. And again, what you see here is the media and the progressives with air quotes. They want to argue policy and say, of course he should be able to see. That's good policy. But the Constitution can't just be ignored. And if you don't like what the Constitution says or the result it, it leads to, there's a way to amend it. And those are just some of the issues in the news this week. But back to flag burning. So back in 1984, that's when the action happened. The case was decided in 89. Gregory Lee Johnson burned a United States flag as part of a political demonstration outside of the Republican National Convention in Dallas. He was represented, this Johnson fellow, by William Kunstler before the Supreme Court, who's a famous civil rights lawyer from back in the day. Johnson, he was born in 1956 and is still alive, is an interesting fella. According to Wikipedia, he is a political activist affiliated with the Revolutionary Communist Party, USA. He is not a fan of the United States, hence the reason he was burning a flag. So the Supreme Court in this case voted five to four in favor of Johnson and said Texas cannot prosecute him for his act of burning a flag. Now, the majority opinion was written by William Brennan, and he was joined by Thurgood Marshall. Now, Brennan was known as a progressive, but he was nominated by a Republican president, Eisenhower. Marshall joined him, nominated by a Democrat, LBJ. Also in the majority were three more Republicans. Harry Blackman, who was nominated by Nixon, Antonin Scalia, nominated by Reagan, and Anthony Kennedy, also nominated by Reagan. Kennedy also wrote a separate concurrence. Out of the five-person majority here, four of them were nominated by Republicans. And the dissent was written by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who had also been nominated by a Republican, Ronald Reagan. He was nominated to the Chief Justice spot by Reagan. He'd been nominated to the bench originally by Nixon. Also in the dissent, Byron White, nominated by a Democrat, JFK, and Sandra Day O'Connor, nominated by a Republican, Ronald Reagan. There was a separate dissent by John Paul Stevens, also nominated by a Republican, Ford. So the dissent had three Republicans and one Democrat for four. The majority, four Republicans and one Democrat. So the total bench at this time was seven Republicans out of nine. And today's progressive sphere of Trump nominating another Republican is rather situational. Progressives weren't so concerned about an imbalance of power when FDR was president for four terms and dominated the Supreme Court with his appointments. So this concern about an imbalance on the court is rather situational. They're not worried about imbalance. They're worried about them losing control or losing more control of it. But as you can see, 
in this case, and as in most cases, the political parties of the president who nominated the justices doesn't usually make the deciding factor. Let's get right into the words of the opinion. This is how it starts. Brennan writes for the majority. After publicly burning an American flag as a means of political protest, Gregory Lee Johnson was convicted of desecrating a flag in violation of Texas law. This case presents the question whether his conviction is consistent with the First Amendment. We hold that it is not. So I mentioned Kunstler, one of Johnson's appellate lawyers. Uh, He died in 1995 at the age of 76, and he is known as, quote, an American radical lawyer and civil rights activist known for his politically unpopular clients. I don't know if one could ask for a better epitaph than that. Now, he also had several critics for some of his activities. I'll leave it at that. The court goes on. While the Republican National Convention was taking place in Dallas in 1984, Respondent Johnson participated in a political demonstration, dubbed the Republican War Chest Tour. That's what he dubbed it. As explained in literature distributed by the demonstrators, because he wasn't the only one, and in speeches made by them, the purpose of this event was to protest the policies of the Reagan administration and of certain Dallas-based corporations. The demonstrators marched through the Dallas streets, chanting political slogans and stopping at several corporate locations to stage die-ins intended to dramatize the consequences of nuclear war. On several occasions, they spray-painted the walls of buildings and overturned potted plants. But Johnson himself, important, took no part in such activities. He did, however, accept an American flag handed to him by a fellow protestor who had taken it from a flagpole outside one of the targeted buildings. So that's how the Supreme Court lays out the facts. And theft of the flag is left out here. Now, remember, you can't burn somebody else's flag. That's at the very least theft. You have to provide your own flag to burn. So I don't know why Johnson wasn't charged with destruction of public property or whatever it was. He was only charged with desecrating the flag. And I don't, maybe Johnson didn't know where it came from, but it seems to be if you're going to burn a flag, you have to be prepared. Not only do you have to have matches, you've got to have some kind of lighter fluid. And if we just took the application of property rights, I think that makes the issue a lot simpler. You can do whatever you want to your flag as long as you're not harming other people. You're not choking somebody with the fumes from the smoke. So the vandalism happened, the theft of the flag happened, but Johnson was not a part of that apparently. And for whatever reason, Texas only cited him with burning the flag. Flag desecration, not vandalism, trespass, nothing else. Just flag desecration, which makes this an easier case to look at. Brennan goes on for the majority. The demonstration ended in front of Dallas City Hall, where Johnson unfurled the American flag doused it with kerosene, and so he brought that with him, obviously, and set it on fire. While the flag burned, the protesters chanted, yada, yada, yada. After the demonstrators dispersed, a witness to the flag burning collected the flag's remains and buried them in his backyard. No one was physically injured or threatened with injury, though several witnesses testified that they had been seriously offended by the flag burning. Note the irony of modern conservatives with air quotes today complaining about how far too many people get offended far too easily when they were the ones offended at the flag burning back in 84 but the court goes on of the approximately 100 demonstrators johnson alone was charged with the crime the only criminal offense with which he was charged was the desecration of a venerated object in violation of a texas penal code he was convicted then sentenced to a year in jail and fined $2,000. He appealed, lost in the first level of the state appeal, won in the higher Texas court. Then the state of Texas didn't like that, so they appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's how we get to this decision we're talking about. Brennan explains, the highest
U.S. State Court of Texas started by recognizing that Johnson's conduct was symbolic speech protected by the First Amendment. Given the context of an organized demonstration, speeches, slogans, and the distribution of literature, anyone who observed Appellant's act would have understood the message that Appellant intended to convey. The act for which Appellant was convicted was clearly speech contemplated by the First Amendment. To justify Johnson's conviction for engaging in symbolic speech, the state of Texas asserted two interests, preserving the flag as a symbol of national unity and preventing breaches of the peace. The high Texas court held that neither interest supported the conviction and threw it out. And this is important. So Texas didn't even argue that he was making a political statement. They admitted that. They acknowledged that. Texas just said that the flag is so important that it should trump the First Amendment. Then they said that the flag-burning law was appropriate to help stop breaches of the peace. So the Supreme Court majority agrees with the state of Texas' highest court, which threw out the convictions. But the minority here agrees that the flag is so important it trumps the First Amendment, which is frightening to me, but lots of people feel that way. And since this decision, Congress has tried more than once to pass a constitutional amendment, making the First Amendment subservient to respecting the flag. And as far as I'm concerned, if you need to threaten people with jail to show respect, then the respect doesn't exist. Like most criminal laws, it exacerbates the problem it thinks it is solving. The Supreme Court continues to cite the Texas court favorably that threw it out. A government cannot mandate by fiat a feeling of unity in its citizens. Therefore, that very same government cannot carve out a symbol of unity and prescribe a set of approved messages to be associated with that symbol when it cannot mandate the status or feeling the symbol purports to represent. Exactly. And as to the breach of peace argument advanced by the state of Texas, Texas already had a separate breach of the peace statute that covered, you know, actually breaching the peace. So that was an embarrassing argument, mere pretext to try to justify the suppression of speech. Brennan, for the majority, continued on. Johnson was convicted of flag desecration for burning the flag rather than for uttering insulting words. This fact somewhat complicates our consideration of his conviction under the First Amendment. We must first determine whether Johnson's burning of the flag constituted expressive conduct, permitting him to invoke the First Amendment in challenging his conviction. So Johnson wasn't convicted for his words. He can clearly say, and not be prosecuted, he can say, the U.S. is a horrible place. That's protected. And that's an easy First Amendment question. But is flag burning expressive conduct. And since this is the first time the Supreme Court has dealt with that issue, I get why it's being argued, but I don't see how any other result could be possible. He's clearly expressing an idea. He's speaking through his act. He's expressing that he thinks the U.S. is a horrible place. And again, that's not in dispute. Texas admits that, and so does the dissent. They just say that the, the flag is too important to be allowed to be desecrated, notwithstanding the First Amendment. The majority says, the First Amendment literally forbids the abridgment only of speech, but we, the Supreme Court, have long recognized that its protection does not end at the spoken or written word. So let's look at the First Amendment, exactly what it says. It says in pertinent part, Congress shall make a no law abridging the freedom of speech. And while this is a Texas statute, the 14th Amendment makes that apply to the states which we've talked about, and I'll just leave it at that for now. And this is another great opportunity, which I shall take, to mention that the first 10 amendments don't grant rights to anyone. They restrict government authority to infringe on certain rights that already exist. So the First Amendment does not say, the people hereby are granted the freedom to speak freely. It does not say that. 
It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That freedom already exists. So it's not really a bill of rights. It is a bill of restrictions. It's restrictions on the government. And then the Ninth Amendment makes this even more clear. It applies to the rest of the Bill of Rights restrictions, the Bill of Restrictions, and the Ninth Amendment says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others, other rights, retained by the people. That's it. So the Constitution mentions freedom of speech that already exists in the First Amendment. That doesn't mean you don't have similar freedom to express yourself in other ways. Writing is the most obvious one. It doesn't say you have the freedom to write. It says you have the freedom of speech. But the First Amendment mentions speech. But the Ninth Amendment says just because you mention speech doesn't mean you don't have other rights. So you have all the possible methods of expression at your disposal. You have those rights. Just because the First Amendment says the government can't infringe on your freedom of speech doesn't mean they can't infringe on all the other rights you already have as well. And that is explicitly stated in the Ninth Amendment. The enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny others other rights. And this is almost completely ignored by legal quote-unquote experts and pundits today and has been for over a century. And we, we, we should not let them ignore that. They know it's there. They know what the Ninth Amendment says. They know that the First Ten Amendments don't grant rights. They restrict the government. But like Bertha and Jane Eyre, they want to lock it away in the attic and pretend it doesn't exist. But it does. It does exist. And we can't let them shove the crazy first wife into the darkness to be forgotten. We need to save Bertha Mason. We need to save the Constitution. We need to save the Ninth Amendment. We need to fight the illegitimate power the federal government has usurped from us all as individuals. We have this document, the Constitution, that is not difficult to read. And we've let statists and progressives in both major parties ignore it for their own selfish ends and accumulation of power for themselves. Back to flag burning is something the government can't restrict as a means of communication. As long as it doesn't harm anyone else physically and isn't fraud, they're not stealing from somebody, it should be protected, that act. The end. That should be the analysis. I mean, that assumes property rights are being respected, but theft and vandalism are already crimes regardless of one's attempt at whatever communication one might be trying to say. So burning a nylon flag in public could be a violation of pollution laws. Of course, that's no problem with that because that harms others physically by making them breathe smoke. And no one has the right to make you do that, to breathe smoke. And for example, standing on the street corner, preaching is okay. But using an amp that goes to 11 at 2 o'clock in the morning outside a nursing home to preach is not because you're bothering other people. You're disturbing the peace, literally. And that is fine to make that illegal. And the majority mentioned several other nonverbal acts that count as speech. Wearing black armbands to protest Vietnam, a sit-in, they write, a sit-in by blacks in a whites-only area to protest segregation is okay. That speech, even though it doesn't involve words or saying words, picketing is another example the Supreme Court has mentioned. Then the court turns to a prior flag case. When somebody attached a peace sign to a flag, the government can't infringe upon the right to do that. And sometimes people will say that's constitutionally protected speech. That's not the best way to say it. The Constitution doesn't protect speech because that implies the government grants you the right to speak and the government protects that right to speak. It doesn't. The Constitution says government can't infringe on that right. It's a subtle but important distinction. You have that right. The government cannot infringe upon it. It's not the government giving you that right and protecting it. And contrast these protests with the guy putting a peace sign on the flag and this Johnson fellow communist burning the U.S. flag and desecrating it. Contrast those protests with modern 
pro-law enforcement people putting a blue stripe on the U.S. flag. So they don't consider that desecration. But if one truly wants to treat the flag as special and more important than the First Amendment, it is desecration. And desecrating it in a pro-government way can't be allowed if desecrating it in an anti-government way is punished. That's the very definition of authoritarian. That is the very definition of infringing upon the right to speak or to express oneself. And Johnson's, the plaintiffs here, or the defendant, the criminal defendant, his anti-government beliefs are apparent, Brennan states, for the majority. Johnson burned an American flag as part, indeed as the culmination of a political demonstration that coincided with the convening of the Republican Party and its renomination of Ronald Reagan for president. The expressive, overtly political nature of this conduct was both intentional and overwhelmingly apparent. In these circumstances, Brennan writes, Johnson's burning of the flag was conduct sufficiently imbued with elements of communication to implicate the First Amendment. Now, that seems obvious, and the Supreme Court declared it so. Then the Supreme Court says, A law directed at the communicative nature of conduct must, like a law directed at speech itself, be justified by the substantial showing of need that the First Amendment requires. Okay, this is a terrifying statement, and this is from the opinion that is purporting to protect the First Amendment and throughout this conviction. Because what they're saying here is that a law that restricts speech must have a really good reason. Let me read the quote again. A law directed at the communicative nature of conduct must, like a law directed at speech itself, be justified by the substantial showing of need of the government. So, in other words, if you're going to restrict speech, government has to have a really good reason. And that's a horrible formulation. A better formulation is as long as that speech, including the method of speech, like burning a flag, as long as that's not violating anyone else's rights, then it's okay. Knowing of government needs or weighing of interests is necessary. In fact, it's a bad idea. I don't want to hear about the government's needs. What the government needs to do is to stop stifling expression, anti-government or otherwise. That's what it needs to do. The court continues this line of thought. Brennan says, It is, in short, not simply the verbal or nonverbal nature of the expression, but the governmental interest at stake that helps to determine whether a restriction on that expression is valid. All right, that the government interest should be of zero consequence. The only consideration should be, in sum, the application of the non-aggression principle. If you're not hurting someone else, government has no interest. And any other purported interest is of no consequence. It shouldn't be. I mean, it is. But that's a bad formulation. If we're going to leave open the consideration of the governmental interest at stake, it leaves open the restriction of speech, or even worse, other restrictions, based on whatever the government says its interests are. It leaves open that possibility. And they've done it. In Korematsu, which we discussed in episode 51, the governmental interest at stake was winning World War II. That's a pretty serious government interest, right? And that government interest was used to imprison people without even an allegation of a crime being committed or without even an allegation of disloyalty to the United States. Don't even, this wasn't even a factor. All the government said is, we need to protect ourselves because we're in a war. That was a government interest. That's where weighing government interests leads to imprisoning American citizens because they're of a certain ethnicity and racial background. Y'all know what I think needs to be done with that balancing test and all these balancing tests that the court has come up with. I find them so abhorrent, so profound and disgusting that decorum prohibits listing them here, with apologies, of course, to Douglas Niedermeyer. Then on the breaching of the peace argument, the court says, the only evidence offered by the state at trial to show the reaction to Johnson's actions was the testimony of several persons who had been seriously offended by the flag burning. 
The state's position, therefore, according to the court, amounts to a claim that an audience that takes serious offense at particular expression is necessarily likely to disturb the peace and that the expression may be prohibited on that basis. Exactly. And that's just absurd, right? You can't say you're prohibited from saying X because someone else might not like that and they might hit you, thus breaching the peace. And this leads to a discussion of the fighting words doctrine, which the court had upheld decades earlier in 1969 in the case Brandenburg versus Ohio. So the court discusses that and says, nor does Johnson, such the guy who burned the flag, nor does his expressive conduct fall within that small class of fighting words that are likely to provoke the average person to retaliation and thereby cause a breach of the peace. In other words, make somebody mad so they'll hit you. The court says no reasonable onlooker would have regarded Johnson's generalized expression of dissatisfaction with the policies of the federal government as a direct personal insult or an invitation to exchange fisticuffs. So what happened in that Chaplinsky case? Chaplinsky called a local government official a, and I apologize, it's not sufficient for work, but it's listed in the Supreme Court opinion, so I'm just reading it, a goddamn racketeer and a damned fascist. So those were the names he called a guy in public. And the Supreme Court said that was not protected speech, not within the context of everything that went on there. Chaplinsky's speech was not protected in that case. Now, I think that's wrong, but that's what the court said, and that's the law. Thankfully, in this flag case, the Supreme Court did not expand that doctrine any further. Next, the court says, the state, Texas, also asserts an interest in preserving the flag as a symbol of nationhood and national unity. Well, in my opinion, you will respect this or you will be punished doesn't seem to be that effective of a plan. The court says it remains to consider by us, the Supreme Court, whether the state's interest in preserving the flag as a symbol of nationhood and national unity justifies Johnson's convictions. Well, if that's the case, if that's the standard, we want to preserve a symbol of nationhood and national unity. That standard could be used as a pretext to stop criticism of the president, couldn't it? And the court doesn't go that far. It doesn't apply it to burning a flag either. Brennan writes, according to Texas, if one physically treats the flag in a way that would tend to cast doubt on either the idea that nationhood and national unity are the flag's references or that national unity actually exists, if they're casting doubt on that idea. The message conveyed thereby is a harmful one, Texas argument, and therefore may be prohibited by criminal punishment. However, the court rejects that and says absolutely correctly, if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. Then they quote another case involving the refusal to salute the flag, which they said could not be punished either. If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, Brennan writes, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or for citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. So they can't make you salute the flag. We, the Supreme Court, never before have held that the government may ensure that a symbol be used to express only one view of that symbol. Because Texas is saying, yeah, you can use the flag to show respect to the country, but you can't use the flag to show disrespect to the country. You can't disrespect the flag to make that point. And the dissent disagrees with the majority. The dissent agrees with the state of Texas. They're saying you can use the flag to show patriotism, but you cannot use it to show dissent or disrespect of the country. And that's an untenable position. It re I mean, I, it's like sanctioning only government-approved conduct and punishing those who do not do as they are instructed by the government. Because exactly what it is. And I like this part from the majority. 
There is, moreover, no indication, either in the text of the Constitution or in our cases interpreting it, that a separate judicial category exists for the American flag alone. Indeed, we would not be surprised to learn that the persons who framed our Constitution and wrote the amendment that we now construe were not known for their reverence for the Union Jack. Amen. Our forefathers were traitors, lawbreakers, treasonous. Patrick Henry famously said, if this be treason, make the most of it. And thank goodness they did. And this part is great. The court is absolutely right. They say, the way to preserve the flag's special role is not to punish those who feel differently about these matters. It is to persuade them that they are wrong. National unity as an end, which officials may foster by persuasion and example, is not in question. The problem is whether, under our Constitution, compulsion, as here employed, is a permissible means for its achievement. So compulsion is, if you don't respect it, we're going to put you in jail. That's compulsion. And make no mistake, everything the government does is via compulsion. If compulsion isn't necessary to do it, then the government isn't necessary to accomplish it. The court goes on, the majority, the remedy to be applied to this negative speech is more speech, not enforced silence. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, can imagine no more appropriate response to burning a flag than waving one's own. No better way to counter a flag burner's message than by saluting the flag that burns. We do not consecrate the flag by punishing its desecration. For in doing so, we dilute the freedom that this cherished emblem represents. So the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the First Amendment, thank goodness, and ruled in favor of this communist flag burner, Gregory Lee Johnson. Because, as you guys know I like to say, freedom is dangerous, and Americans aren't or should not be afraid to let others live with that same freedom. Should not be afraid to live dangerously and let others live dangerously by exercising dangerous freedom. Now, the dissent agrees with the state of Texas. They say the flag is more important than the First Amendment. That's not an unfair characterization of it. Rehnquist, writing for the dissent, writes, For more than 200 years, the American flag has occupied a unique position as the symbol of our nation, a uniqueness that justifies a governmental prohibition against flag burning in the way Respondent Johnson did here. So for, because it's been this unique symbol for over 200 years, it justifies prohibiting the expression against it. The dissent is, is really attempting to amend the Constitution to say what they wanted to say. Because the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And that's where it stops, in pertinent part. What the dissent wants to do here is to make it say Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech unless it involves screwing around with the flag. But that isn't what it says, and the majority got it correct. Rehnquist goes on to quote poems about the flag, songs about the flag, historical facts about the flag, all which would be very appropriate for a middle school essay on what the flag means to me. Not so appropriate in a Supreme Court opinion analyzing and applying the Constitution. The dissent concludes with, The court, the majority, decides that the American flag is just another symbol, about which not only must opinions pro and con be tolerated, but for which the most minimal public respect may not be enjoined, may not be made criminal. Yeah, that's exactly what they did, and they got it right. So I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 72, Texas versus Johnson. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, as always. And let me know what you think. It's Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. So check that stuff out. Hit me up if you disagree or if you agree. Discussion is always good. If you want me to come speak to one of your groups, 
consult or teach about any of this stuff, I'd be glad to do it. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. And as this case demonstrates very well, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.